0: It's, um, it's a hard day to know exactly what to say. Um, <laughs> for me especially, I kind of get up here and I feel like I'm always reaching a little bit exactly what should be said, what needs to be said. And for a number of reasons, this week is, is a difficult week. Um, I don't know if you paid attention to any of this, but last Sunday, the Uh, Southern Baptist Convention released an independent report. It was about 300 pages that uh, was done by an independent agency that basically reported, again, over the course of roughly 300 pages, page after page, incident after incident, of sexual abuse that had taken place in the SBC. Pastors that they knew had committed these acts, the ways that the SVC had actually moved to protect people uh, that had committed these acts. So that's horrific enough that the church, this place where we feel like we're calling people in to safety, calling people into freedom, calling people into liberation, that we're finding out that for about 14 million people worldwide, this has really been their church experience. It's been an experience of, Manipulation and abuse and horrific tragedy and cover-up. It's heartbreaking. And then, of course, if that doesn't break your heart already, to bear witness to the shooting in Uvalde, Texas, and that we seem to be settling into another cycle of thoughts and prayers and inaction action. Of intense social media posts and virtue signaling and all of the the worst of us, right we hope that something 's different, but hope is is what we do hope hope is not a feeling, hope is not well wishes hope is not just praying hope is is action, we are actively, all of us, hoping into the world that we want to make for ourselves. And so we should ask, we should pause and say, what is it that we hope for the world? And then on the back end of that question, what do we hope for the world? We should be asking ourselves, what are we doing to make that hoping part of our reality, part of our lived experience with one another? And so I, I, I got into bed last night about midnight and I got in the covers and my wife was reading a book and I said, I have no idea what to say tomorrow. I'm just, I'm pretty, pretty empty right now. Maybe you are too. Maybe you're reaching for the right kinds of thoughts and ideas and words to say, but I'm going to lean in this morning to our New Testament text. This is out of Acts 16. And my hope today is that we can read through this story. I'm gonna share some reflections and we're gonna come to the table because that's, that's what we do. That in the best parts of our lives, we come and we give thanks. And then in the worst parts of our lives, we still come and we still give thanks. But more on that in just a little bit. Our New Testament text is out of Acts 16 and this is Paul and Silas in prison. This is a pretty familiar text to us. It goes like this. Once as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit of prediction. Other translations say divination. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune telling. As she followed Paul and us, she cried out, these men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the slaves of the most high God. And she did this for many days. But Paul was greatly aggravated and turning to the spirit said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour when her owners saw that their hope of profit was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. A a couple quick thoughts. First of all, Luke could have omitted this section. If he was trying to convince people that the gospel, that the good news of Jesus Christ is always going to feel like good news, you don't tell this story because of where it leads us. It leads to Paul and Silas being flogged, being put in prison. There's an earthquake that's involved. Spoiler alert. There's no... There's no reason that Luke needed to include this. It could have it exposes so much of the trouble that the gospel often gets us into. In verse 19, where this woman who is given this spirit of divination, this spirit of prediction. It's interesting that the text doesn't say that it's an evil spirit. The text doesn't say that it's a it's a demonic spirit. In some ways we could understand this woman to have the gift of prophecy based on the Old Testament prophets, that she's someone who is seeing more than just what's happening. The demonic bend on this whole story is not that she has this spirit. The demonic bend is that these men have used her gift for profit. They've taken this gift that she's been given and they've used it to create wealth, for themselves. And what we see in Paul and Silas setting this woman free is that healing for one person means the loss of money for other people. Healing for one means loss of money for others. If only there was a people, maybe a country, that could be healed if it weren't for the profit of a few if it weren't for the money grabs of a few interested parties. So they get themselves in trouble, as I kind of feel like I'm doing myself. (laughs) And it says that when her owners saw that their hope of profit was gone, when their way of making money, of making wealth for themselves, when that was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And bringing them before the chief magistrates, they said, These men are seriously disturbing our city. These men are Jews. Now, something you need to know about the first century world is that accusing someone of being a Jew is not really an accusation. The, the reason that they're in trouble is not that they're Jews. Jews in this part of the world, at this time in the world, they lived peaceably, without trouble, alongside Gentiles and other people. The issue was not that they were Jews, even though that's the accusation. The real problem is that they are teaching and they are living a way of life in which Roman culture and customs, allegiance to Caesar, were not the guiding values. That these were not the markers of how you live and be in the world. And they're in a place where that's all they've known, that allegiance to Caesar was how you made sense of the world, that's how you secured safety for yourself, it's how you understood your place. And here's Paul and here's Silas, and the issue is not that they're Jews, the issue is that they're showing up as people who are saying Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. That's why they get themselves in trouble, not because of who they are, but because of the kind of world that they belong to. They believe in a different king. They believe in a different empire. And what I think we need to see is that whatever is true for them does become true for us, that we are people who are not from around here. Our friend Brian Zahn says that the baptistry is a time machine. He says, We are people who are from the future. We are people who have caught a glimpse of the life of the world to come. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is do we live in ways that actually look like we believe that? Do we live in ways that actually create question for people? Do we live in ways that don't really make sense because our allegiances aren't placed in the same places and in the same powers and in the same systems and in the same people as everybody else's? Are we from the future? This means that we, we ought to live in ways that, that cut against the grain of the status quo, that we live in ways that resist just the way that things have been. Because we know something of how all of this ends. we know the telos, we know where the eschaton leads us in the life of the world to come. And so we can and we should live right now like it will be then. Because what if the then becoming now requires our participation in living like it already is. We ought to live in ways that actually look like freedom for other people, that actually look like liberation for other people. We ought to live in ways that our lives actually start to sound and look like good news to other people. This is what Rowan Williams means. You didn't think I'd go too long without mentioning Rowan Williams. (laughs) This is what Rowan Williams means when he talks about trustworthy lives. Who are the people that are living trustworthy lives in our world? And what does a trustworthy life look like? It looks like somebody who has gotten a glimpse of the future and they're committed to living that way now. They've seen something of Christ filling all of creation. This week was the, on Thursday, I'm sure you all celebrated and had parties at your house, was the ascension of the Lord was on Thursday. We'll do a better job in the future of, you know, marking these moments for us as, as a community. The ascension of the Lord we celebrated on Thursday. The ascension is this moment where Jesus goes up And the text for Ascension has this moment where the disciples are just kind of staring at the sky, going, what do we do now? And these two men, dressed in white, come and they say, why are you looking up there? What what are you doing? (laughs) A few of us earlier were standing here looking at the the projectors, trying to figure out what is going to happen. And there's this unique phenomenon that when you stand in a place long enough, and do this, that everybody else starts to do the same thing. But I think this is oftentimes the posture that we take in the world. That we are looking and we're waiting. And we need those faithful, trustworthy lives to come and disrupt us and say, what are, you, what are you looking for? Why are you just staring at the sky? That's not hope. Be people of hope. Be people who take this world that you're waiting on, this world that you're hoping is gonna come crashing down on us any moment. Take all of your ideas and the things that you trust to be true about that world and just go and be those people. Be the people who are Isaiah two people be the ones who beat their swords into plowshares, who beat their spears into pruning hooks, to being the people who refuse to learn the ways of war anymore. Because if it's going to be true of the future, we might as well get used to it now. Why would we want to spend eternity in a world that we don't even know how to agree with today? This is part of what we hope to be true about the age of the life of the world to come is that if it requires our participation, if that's true, then we ought to be people who get about the work of carving out spaces of welcome So that as we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. What God finds on earth is faithful people who have already committed to the reality that your kingdom is welcome. How do we know that it's welcome? Because we're already living in ways that look like the future. We're already living in ways that looks like radical, unqualified welcome and hospitality and healing for the world rather than trying to work out how can we make a profit on somebody this isn't about some kind of utopian idealism this is about some kind of attainable goal in reality that with god's help we can start to create for ourselves we are people who have seen a glimpse of the future. So we should ask ourselves if Jesus prays this prayer, the gospel text that we read today, this is a prayer that Jesus is praying, that they may be one as, as you and I are one. If this is the prayer that Jesus prays, we ought to ask ourselves, does Jesus get what Jesus prays for? And it turns out that part of the answer to that question relies on us, relies on on our willingness to see ourselves in the way that Jesus already sees us as one. And how do do we mark out in the world these ways of being one with each other? The gospel tells us by the ways that we love one another. What does this look like? Let's keep reading for just a moment. Then the mob joined the attack against Paul and Silas and the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had inflicted many blows on them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to keep them securely guarded. Receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in the stocks. A quick note about this jailer. Historically, the people who had the business, the job of being jailers, were generally people who had served in the Roman military, the Roman army, and had then, then retired, right? So these are people who had gone out, had fought wars, had conquered, and are just getting a little too old for the job, but they're people who have seen some things. And it's these men who are charged with guarding the prisons, with being jailers, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains came loose. We've heard this sermon before. We've heard these sermons that tell us we need to be people of prayer and we need to be people of worship. We need to be singing our, our hymns even while we're in chains and we need to let the other people hear it. And then we need to wait for the earthquake, right? Because God's gonna come and shake this whole thing free. We've heard this sermon. What we don't like is this part. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. It's an odd text, but it's one that we see bear out in the tradition, that historically what you would see happen is if prisoners escaped the jail, the jailer, the one who is in charge of guarding these prisoners, would often be executed by the Roman government. This is someone who knows his own fate, and not only does he know his own fate, Paul and Silas know something of his own fate. Why do they know that? Well, because Peter had been in prison. And Peter had had this miraculous moment of being escorted out of the jail. And maybe they caught word of what happened to that jailer. And so what do they do? Paul calls out to him in a loud voice and says, don't harm yourself. All of us are here. And then the jailer called for lights. He rushed in. He fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he escorted them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Then they spoke the message of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. He took them the same hour of the night and he washed their wounds. Right away, he and all his family were baptized. He brought them into his house. He set a meal before them and rejoiced because he had believed God with his entire household. Don't harm yourself. We're all here. This, I think, gives us a picture of what Christian freedom looks like. It looks like being people who know what it is to have your chains loosened, to have the walls of your prisons shaken and opened to you. But sometimes freedom looks like sitting exactly where you are for the good of your neighbor. Sometimes we think about freedom as all of the things that we're free to do all the ways that we're free to be without consequence, all the ways that we are free from responsibility for our neighbor. But the gospel says you are not free from your responsibilities to your neighbor. You are free to love and to serve your neighbor as Christ has loved and served you, which might mean like not walking out of that door that's been opened to you. It might look like sitting right where you've been and being a kind of hopeful future-filled, non-anxious presence in the world. It might look like giving up the freedoms that have been opened to you for the good of your neighbor, for the well-being of the one who is going to hurt himself, to kill himself, because he knows what the future holds for him. And then this is the kind of life that we see opened when we can be non-anxious, settled presence in the world, people who don't rush to every freedom that's just been granted to us, but instead we see freedom as a way of bearing responsibility for for one another and for our neighbors. What we see is that the good news can actually come to those who have been standing at the doors. And the good news does this. The good news opens up to us this desire to be part of the future. Notice he was baptized that very hour. Alexander Schmemann, Orthodox theologian, says that the first act of the Christian life, talking about baptism, is a reunification. That this is what we see in our baptism. Not that we become people who are free to do what we want, but we are reunited with the body that we're called to belong to. And to belong to the body means that I am not my own. It means that what I do in the world and how I engage with the world actually matters. because I'm part of something bigger than myself. And so I have to learn what it is to act in ways, to live in ways that are faithful to this body that I belong to. Not just doing whatever I want, but being who I am, being myself fully and completely as part of the body of Christ. Not only is he baptized, that his baptism opens up as we see play out in the gospels over and over and over again, that his hearing of the gospel and his being baptized and being reunited with who he truly is leads to this moment of hospitality. It leads to his turning to Paul and Silas, the one that He just flogged and stripped them naked and locked them in chains and bound their feet in the stocks and closed the door behind them. Now he's here setting a table before them, washing their wounds. This is what we hope. This is what we trust, is that as we live in ways that do make us vulnerable, Living as people who have turned their spears into pruning hooks and their swords into plowshares means that we have nothing left to defend ourselves with. And living in the world with that kind of posture means that what we trust about the future is that even as we bear wounds, even as we're beaten and we're locked away, that God will open up doors. For others to be hospitable, for others to set tables before us, so long as we're faithful, so long as we refuse to be given over to the whims of what we think freedom looks like for us. He asked the question what must I do to be saved? In the ascension that we celebrated this week, we we celebrate this reality that Christ has ascended back to the right hand of the Father, that God has received Christ's life back into himself. And by being human, by being the one who is incarnate, Jesus has not only carried his own life back to God, he has carried our lives back to God. Part of the reality of the ascension is that there is nowhere we can go where Christ is in present and Christ is not Lord. We hear the jailers question, what must I do to be saved? As well, you just need to accept Jesus into your heart. We've all prayed this prayer, we've raised our hands, we've had the moment. And I do think those moments are meaningful when we step across the threshold of faith. But let's not get confused That being saved is not about us accepting Jesus' life into ours, being saved is about seeing that Christ has accepted us into his own life. That Christ has accepted us to live in the reality that he lives in, in the kind of future that he's making possible for us. That's the reality of the ascension. So the question becomes not, what are you doing to defend Jesus? What are you doing to open up spaces where Jesus can creep in and be present? That's not the question. The question is, Christ is present. How are you responding to the reality of Christ in the world? How are you responding to the reality of Christ in your neighbor? How are you responding to the reality of Christ in the people that you don't think Christ is really present to? That's Paul and Silas's posture toward the jailer. Not to run for their lives, not to sprint through the door that's been opened to them just because it's been opened to them. They see that they bear some kind of responsibility for this man that their actions can lead to his life or death. And they chose life. They chose to sit and to wait and to be patient. Our final text for today is one that The people who put this book together kind of hoped we wouldn't stumble on. It's at the back of the book. This is out of Revelation 22. And this is it. This is the moment. Today is the seventh Sunday after Easter. This whole season of Eastertide is wrapping up this week. Next Sunday, we celebrate Pentecost Sunday. And Father Chris is scheduled to preach with his fire tennis shoes that he wears only on Pentecost Sunday (laughs) but this is the moment all of this is coming to this kind of conclusion it says this look I am coming quickly my reward is with me to repay each person according to what he has done I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you. For the churches, I am the root and the offspring of David. I am the bright morning star." Both the spirit and the bride say, come. Anyone who hears should say, come. And the one who is thirsty should say, come. Whoever desires should take the living water as a gift. I testify to everyone who hears the prophetic words of this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this book, God will take away his share of the tree of life. He who testifies about these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. Come, come. This is the invitation that Christ gives to his church gives to his world, that the doors are open. You are invited and welcomed and cherished. You are wanted is the invitation at the end of all things. And so, again, if this is the reality of the future world, of the life of the world to come, why would our posture toward the world be any different our doors are open and we say come all of you who have deemed yourselves unworthy those that have been told to get out those who have been wandering and searching we say join us the ones who have been wandering and searching and looking right along with you come you are wanted and you are welcomed Come in, taste, and see that the Lord is good. We're people from the future. People who hope into the age of the world, of the life that is to come. So we should act like it. We're not from around here. Amen.